and then tell them it's Christmas and have them give it to you. Uh, first, um, first Samuel chapter 14, please. You know, it's always a challenge, of course, when you go to, uh, to speak at some place where you're not, you know, we, we have eight Bible studies through the course of the week. Um, each day, a different book of the Bible. Uh, we do a couple of double hitters as well. And uh, it's easy, though, because you always know what your next text is going to be. It's just where you left off. And then, you know, so, you know, it's sort of like Joshua on this night and this and that night. But when it's, um, when you come into a place like this, it's a lot more prayer, which is really nice to be able to, to take some time and really pray for you guys as a fellowship and to pray, to just sort of press into the heart of God and say, God, what is it that you really want to speak specifically to them? Because you, you feel like you've got this teaspoon and you've got this ocean in front of you and you're trying to figure out which teaspoon you're trying to hand to somebody. And it's, you know, the teaspoon's enough of glory that for all of us, there are heads to explode. So here we go. Let's, let's read through our text. First Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go to the Philistine garrison. It's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was sitting out in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is called Migron. Could you try Migron? Try that way. Come on now. We're going to get you kind of involved in this a little bit. And if you're going to say Hebrew, you can't say Hebrew like, you know, like an accountant, with all due respect. He was like, Migron. Try that. Migron. Migron's important because the word in essence kind of means to freak out. It's sort of the precipice of sort of when you're about to sort of fall into a total panic attack. That's kind of the idea of this. Uh, and so what a, what a great tree for him to be sitting under at the moment. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now Hia, the son of Ahitub, Ichabad's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing the ifad. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now between the passes... It tells us, by which Jonathan sought to go over uh, the, to the Philistines' garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. So he was going to be between a rock and a hard place for, easily there. And the name of one was Bozes. Try that. Bozes. And the name of the other was Seneh. See, look at that. You guys are all spitting on each other. This is good. His family should be. Now, the front one faced towards Michmash. The uh, southern one, the south one, faced towards Giber. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. And Jonathan said, Well, very well. Let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. That kind of idea, right? Uh, and then it says, but if they say to us, come to us, well, then we'll go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand. This will be a sign to us. If they say, you know, on the other hand, if they say, come, you know, we'll come to you. Well, we'll stand our ground. We'll stand still in the place and I'll go to them. Verse 11, it says, so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison came to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come to us. And we'll show you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with the armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and as he came after him, the armor bearer killed him. That slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men, about a half an acre of land, literally half the distance of where a, a yoke of oxen plows, plows its ground. 
Now there was trembling in the group, or in the camp, and in the field, and among all of the people, and the garrison of the raiders also trembled, and the earthquake for that matter, and so there was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Geber of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away. And they went here and there, and Saul said to the people who were with them, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahia, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now what happened is Saul had talked to the priest that the noise in which the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and the people who were with him assembled, and they went into battle, and every man, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and for there was a great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who had been with them in the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, the men in Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard the Philistines fled, they had also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth Chavin. Will you pray with me, please? Father, your word teaches us in Hebrews that though the gospel and message was preached to the Hebrews as they stood on the shore of the Jordan and looked on the other side, and you tell us that the word did not profit them, for they did not mix it with faith. In your word is everything we need for direction for correction, for equipping in righteousness, for training, to be corrected and rebuked, to be challenged and equipped. And tonight, I pray that you would come upon me in such a way that you would do through me what only you can do, that you would speak to us, that you would speak fluent us, into our lives right exactly where they're at. Speak into every confusion and bring peace, every weakness and bring strength, every disappointment and bring hope. And if there is anyone who has yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let tonight be the night of their salvation. Get me out of your way, God. Come upon me. Immerse me that they would see you and captivate us in your word. And may we have so much fun in your word as we seek to now encounter you, Lord, bring more than information, bring transformation to each of us, I pray. Have your way. Redeem every second, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures, let the Bible be your final say. I would say don't take my word for it, take the word for it. Some of you are familiar with the Roundhouse in Camden Town. It's in my route every Sunday morning on my way to church. MTV hosts a, a sort of a, an obscene amount of concerts there. But on the outside of the Roundhouse, there are these sort of cubbyholes, these nooks, these little areas for which homeless people will tuck into in the course of an evening. And every evening they're going to be there. There's none of those that are empty in the course of any evening. 
Most of those guys are friends of mine. I've had at least the ones that sort of stick around. I get a chance I can tell you them all by name and give you the, the situations as much as I'm aware of them. There are those that kind of come and go, and of course that's very common in London, as you're aware of. But this particular morning, about a month and a half ago, was a little bit different from normal. You would walk by, and, and of course, just like anything, you sort of surmise. You know, and you, you're in the morning or whatever, you're with your family, you're even more sort of attentive to this, and you see sort of the person, and they're sort of parked somewhere, and you are, you're assessing the potential threat that that particular individual might be. And we have sort of signs and symbols with my children, and they've all known it, my wife as well, where if it seems to be that the person seems to be a little bit of unhinged and they might be a potential threat, I'll always sort of put myself in between them to make sure that when we walk by that I'm going to be the first thing they encounter, and if they try anything, I'll be the last thing they encounter. And, uh, <clears throat> and of course, if you know me, I have a very much of a heart for the homeless uh, population, and a, a bit of it is that I'm quite frankly, still amazed that I'm not part of that myself. And uh, <clears throat> on this particular morning, it's just like any other morning, uh, Sunday morning, you're walking by and you sort of see and a gentleman, there's a woman coming, she's in her young 20s, she's sort of heading in the uh, opposite direction and we know we're sort of gonna converge right sort of at where this sort of nook is. And as we kind of look over, we sort of see this gentleman just like normal, but this guy only has a sheet on, it was the first sort of cold night in London. And uh, as we look, we both kind of notice at the same time, and we would have continued to walk, but you know, you ever see something, and then it takes a moment to register, and then you stop, and then you look again, because whatever it was, something wasn't right. And we looked, and we noticed the guy's eyes were open. And then as you took a, a closer look, you realized his skin was very much pale and ashy. And, and within instants, we're both on top of this guy, trying to pump um, a, a pulse back into this guy. Uh, we call the uh, ambulance. They take one look at him, and they recognize he's been dead for at least six, seven hours at this point. And, 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 and he was no one that none of us had really, really known. He was someone that sort of kind of would drift in and out occasionally. Well, we could recognize his face, but there was something really, really sort of, obviously that's profound, it's a profound experience, it's certainly not the first person nor the last person since I've been there that we've uh, stumbled upon that we've either watched I or, or come upon that's dead, uh, but, but in this particular situation, and I'm trying to sort of walk, and I'm on my way to church, and we're going to talk about how great Jesus is, and how wonderful it is to be saved, and how beautiful it is, and what God wants to do with the church, and then while all of this is happening, of course this thing's sort of hanging on top of you, and I realize that his situation was very much like the church in the Western world as we see it. You see, the whole idea was is that somewhere down the line, this particular individual became a little left of center with the people. And the, the story that we had heard from the people that sort of knew him, uh, as you sort of the word kind of gets around, you know, among the sort of, if you will, sort of the, the vagabond vineyard, uh, they will tell you the story that sort of, you know, he just found himself kind of getting a little left of center, and as he did, he found a bottle, and ultimately he drank himself to numbness, let the kind of darkness of the cold tuck him in, and then died from hypothermia before the night was done. And, and, but the idea was is that somewhere down the line, he was a little weird as far as the culture was, and he didn't really fit in with the culture, and, and with that, ultimately, he kind of found another group of people, and the people he found was just a group of people that really just kept dragging him down and dragging him down. Well, well, that's not the point that reminded me of the church by any means. The whole point was is that he had been relegated to this spot that as long as he was away from everybody else and as long as he kind of had his own little space and that he was no threat to the rest of the world. And as long as he was there, we could kind of look every once in a while and go, oh, there he is. And that was enough. And, he, and as a result of that, he became inconsequential. He became insignificant. He became a person without a name. And, and to this day, they still can't tell you what his name is. They don't know. 
And you watch the church get relegated to this place where it's like you can have your buildings and you can sing your songs and you can wear your shirts and you can have your own radio stations and your own books and your own clubs and your own whatevers and all of that's cool. You know, as long as you kind of do it and we can tuck you into a corner and you're no threat to us, you're welcome to do that. And we watch the rest of the world cave and, and, and just dive into their filth and their madness and their emptiness and their vacancy to this point where you're watching an entire world die in front of you and they're kind of going, well, as long as you don't touch us, we're cool with you. Now, I know that. We have friends that are like that, that are that way about doctors. Or about, pardon me for saying it, I know it's a stereotype, but dentists. You know, you've got the, you, you, at this mouth, the, the holiest thing on you is your mouth. And, and you just, the last thing you want to do is see a guy like that, because you know there's going to be some discomfort involved. But there's for a purpose of that. There's a purpose, and then that you're healing. And we watch the church do this too. And, and, and there's a point to all of this, and I'm going to get to where we're at in this text. But please hear me in this. There's, a, there's this point where the church decided that it should actually allow the world to sort of define the rules of engagement. And when that happened, the world just basically said, don't make us uncomfortable, don't make us feel awkward, and as long as you do that, I think we're going to be okay with each other. But the problem is, well, go into a, you know, you're, you're dying of something and you go into a hospital and you're going, don't make me uncomfortable. First of all, that smell, you know the hospital smell? It's like, it's an alcohol smell because you know that smell because it's a disinfectant. But it's unique enough to a hospital that let's just be honest, you walk in there and something inside of you gets the creeps. And then you go from that and you go, oh, I don't really like that. And I don't like the fact that all of the sheets are white. I mean, come on, the thing is so industrialized, right? And then all of this, you know, and everything kind of looks the same and everyone's got the same outfits on. And, and you know, I don't really don't like all of that. And the food, oh, for goodness sakes, really, do I have to eat jello one more day? You know, and, and, and you know, don't put me next to that guy because that guy's kind of weird and he's going to make noise all night and I'm never going to sleep. How am I going to get better? You know, and don't give me that medicine. And whatever you do, do not poke my skin. Right? And we're going to set all of these rules because in the end of it, all we want is we just, we just don't want to get in, uncomfortable. So what happens is the church that's supposed to be a hospital now ceases to be a hospital and tries to become a hotel. Hey, we just want you to come in and get comfortable and be cool with it, and that's going to be okay. So we can't talk about sin because that's kind of a jab, and we can't really talk about guilt because that's kind of a jab. And people will ask me often, because I'm on the streets quite a bit, and they'll ask, are you trying to make me feel guilty? And my question to them is always the same. It's not whether I'm trying to make you feel guilty. The real question is, are you guilty? Because it doesn't matter whether you feel it or whether I'm trying to make you. If you are guilty, you're going to have to deal with that guilt whether you feel it or not. And I might not feel like I'm dying of cancer kind of thing, but if I'm dying of cancer, it still needs to be dealt with. That's the point in this. So the problem is, is this hospital now ceases to do anything that looks like a hospital, smells like a hospital, acts like a hospital, but the problem is the people are coming in are dying. So what happens is they come in and we give them a bed, we make the food a little bit nicer, we dress people up, they look like concierges now, they meet you there, and everybody's sort of there with room service. And But the, the problem is, is that this, this thing that's supposed to be a hospital has become a hotel, but the problem is the hotel people are coming and they're dying, so they die there, so it really isn't a hotel at all, it really is a hospice. But it's a hospice that's an avoidable hospice because it's really a place that people should be coming to get well. So people say, oh, I can't go to a church. There's too many hypocrites. And you tell them there's always room for one more because the whole idea is we all want to come and get clean. And you should be able to do that too. Now, the question is, 
How do we see a whole nation transformed or a community saved if that's where the church is? If the church is in a place of stagnancy and a place of fear and in a place of intimidation and a cross look will be enough to silence the majority of us from sharing Jesus with anyone, how do we see a nation changed? How do we see Bakersfield saved? Here's our answer right here. And it wasn't with a movement. And it wasn't with an organization, with all due respect to movements and organizations. It was one person and his buddy. It was one guy who, by the way, happens to have the name God's grace. you got to like that, first of all. Our reference to this, for what it's worth, is it's roughly, and I'm giving you sort of loose things to sort of not blow your brains out yet, because we have so much more, but we're roughly at about 1,000 B.C., now that means, really, if you think about it, that's roughly four to five hundred years since we had the exodus out of Egypt, and during that time we basically had our 40 years of wandering, and then we had our 400 plus years of this time called the time of judges. Now, God knew this time would come because he actually tells them three different times in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy that you should not do what is right in your own eyes, you need to do what is right in my eyes, God speaking. And that's exactly what he tells us takes place when the people are there during the time of Judges. And for most people, when they talk about their Christian experience, it sounds just like the book of Judges to me. It's like I have these great moments where God blesses me, and then I have these really low moments where I'm crying out to God, but we don't even explain how that happens. God blesses us. We trade the blesser in for his blessings. We turn our back on him because, after all, I've got all I need now. And then ultimately I find myself from all of that in bondage, and it stinks so bad I cry out to God. And when I cry out to God, God raises up a deliverance and says, all right, let's get you back where you belong, and the cycle starts all over again. But he didn't just say everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He did, by the way, what he didn't say was everyone knew that it was wrong and they did what was wrong. And that was the thing because what they were doing was wrong. But as far as they were concerned, it was right. It's like, hey, you know what? Your rights, your right, my rights, my right. And really, what's truth after all? Truth is kind of a relative thing. I go, oh, so if I think it's okay to punch you in the face, that's okay, right? Well, as long as it doesn't hurt me, well, excuse me, but that's not in my truth docket at all. And you realize how strange this gets, and this is what happens, is it tells us there was no king in Israel. You see, the reason why we go through this experience in our Christian walk is we refuse to let God be king of our lives. In other words, we'll take Jesus as Savior, but we won't take him as Lord. But I challenge you to find any scripture that says, as long as you confess Jesus as your Savior, you're good. The demand is to make him Lord. And that is really a harder sell. Let's be honest. When you start to talk to someone about Jesus, if you are the type, what you find is it's almost like you're introducing your friend to an ugly friend you have that you're trying to set him up with. You know, you're kind of soft peddling it. And I'm, I'm just trying to be blunt and safe here. You know, well, they've got really nice, he's got a really nice personality and he's really sweet and he's really caring and he's really forgiving. You know, but we don't want to talk about that judge part of it or the fact that he's going to actually be the one for which all things are tested. We don't want to go there with it. We just want to kind of go with Jesus kind of, he just like, he's like a marshmallow, huggy berries, like Barney, but not purple. And he just loves you and, and he just wants to hug you. You know, he doesn't want to judge you, but he will. And that's not a popular message, but it is the truth. Now, let me set the setting here. Because in this setting, this is what we read. We read that at this point, 
the Philistines, if you will, the perennial enemy of Israel at this point, have so dominated the Israelis that they're hiding in holes, they're hiding in caves. Some have actually abandoned the Israel nation and actually joined in with the Philistines as a whole. And these are God's people, I remind you. The Philistines have so dominated them that by this point, there's only two swords among the entire population of Israel. One is the king's and the other is his son's. A nation with two swords. God's people with no assault weapon. Oh, well, we could still try to defend ourselves. The church was always supposed to be an offensive thing. Are you aware of that? What team wins with a good defense? No, good defense is a good thing. But it doesn't make up for no offense. Even the Bears, who, by the way, I was born in Chicago. I just want to make that clear. Half of the points are scored by the defense, but somewhere in it, the defense became the offense. I don't know how that worked out. Anyways, here's the point. Is that we've gotten to this point where the church becomes student apathy, student indifference, and we get relegated to this place that we're inconsequential, insignificant, irrelevant to the world. And we're trying to play relevant games where we're trying to be relevant to people, but we're not being relevant to eternity. So what difference does it make? It's like being relative to the person who's dying, but not bringing the medicine with you in doing so. And it tells us at this point that if you even had the, the bottom, your mattocks of, of your plow, you had to go to the Philistines to get it sharpened. They dominated so much that you, they were going to check on you. I mean, if your fork got dull and you needed it sharpened, they were the only ones going to do it. They're in no position, let's just put it in the simplest sense, they're just no threat at all. Saul had an army of 330,000 people, and he drops it down to 6,000 people, and now he's dropped it down at this point to 300. Apparently, he doesn't think that there's any need. But in the midst of this, there is a young man, who, by the way, we don't necessarily read about until we read this first, that Saul, a man with a fantastic calling but no consecration, has disqualified his entire legacy because of his previous actions. In other words, before God introduces his son, what becomes evident is he will never become king. So you say, well, this guy's got like, and he's in a privileged position. He's actually in the least privileged. He's the only guy you know won't be king. So what do you do? Here is the situation. At this particular moment, it tells us that it happened that Jonathan, the son of Saul, the, the prince, but never to be king on this, he looks at his armor bearer. Everybody at this point, there's 600 men, if you will. Saul is now relegating himself to this place, position where he's hiding under a tree, if you will. That's called complete an anxiety attack. And he's, he's hanging under this migron tree. Uh, while he's there, he's got his bodyguards surrounding him on every side of it. And Jonathan kind of looks at this and goes, doesn't this look ridiculous to you? Where is, the, where is the, the promises of God where he told us to go and walk in every place that you put the sole of your foot? I'll give to you. Where's the person with the fight left in their heart? Do you know that where I come from now, the whole point is they're told, the first thing that they're told is that the nail that sticks up is the one that gets the hammer. Our daughter was literally told, you realize you are too smart. And if you're going to be this smart, you're going to be punished. 
And she says, excuse me? She was in an inner city school, and her grade being so high forced other people to flunk when they had 26% on their test. But if she left the class, they would pass. And then they turned to her and said to her, I know you're American, so I know you probably don't know this, but the nail that sticks up is the one that gets the hammer. Don't rock the boat. Don't make waves. Aren't you thankful that God thinks differently? Can you imagine God's going, well, the whole world's going to hell, but let's not rock the boat. That would really be rough. I mean, let's not do anything drastic, like send my son to die on a cross for you. Now, God takes a special moment here to give us specific place names, and I want to put us into this position here. Because we all love to have a testimony that speaks of God's promises, but who wants to be put in a place where God has to actually provide that, that miracle or you're going to die? Well, that's where he's at in this. Jonathan looks, and he says, now notice it tells us again in verse 2 that Saul is at the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree. Why is that important? Well, there's a couple things. If anyone can remember, that Saul was originally called Saul of Gebeah. That's where he came from. Ultimately, when he becomes king, it becomes Gebeah of Saul. Probably with souvenirs in the shirt that you can buy from there as well. Now, at this particular moment, it's important to note that Saul, in essence, has now put himself back where he, became, where he came from. That's kind of the point of where we're at in this. He actually had been in Michmash, the very place where the Philistines are going to be. And he had actually left and vacated that area because he actually wasn't willing to fight like he should. His son, by the way, started that fight too. Now, so Saul is sort of sitting under this tree at Gebeah. So let's just do this for the moment because we have an aisle here. I can do this. That makes it a little easier. Okay, so follow me on this. Let's just make it this way. So we're going to call you guys Gebeah over here. So if I were to ask you, where are you? You would say you are, you are? That was really good. Well done. Now, the other place that's mentioned is the place called Michmash. See, notice I give you the one that's more Hebrew. So, although they're both. Okay, so if I were to ask you, where are you? You would say? Okay, thank you, but you've got so much more. Now, I look back at you guys, and I think I got, you've got a good mechmash in you somewhere. So where are you guys? Yeah, that was a little bit better. That's good. Okay, now follow me on this. Saul is at, where is Saul? Where is Saul at? Right, we're at it. Good. So Saul's at Gabay, sitting under a tree, migraine tree. And he's sitting under the tree there, if you will. And what it tells us in the next verse, by the way, is that there's this priest. And he goes down to the lineage. He happens to be the son of it, and he's the brother of it, and so forth. And by the way, we can chase all of that, but I'm going to be careful for time and for clarity. But in all of that, what we find is it's a lineage of people who started back at the end of Judges. And that takes me back to all of that. But what we do read is there is a priest that happens to be there that is completely unaware that the prince has left to start a fight with the Philistines. Which tells me that though the priest is there... He ain't working. And understand that. Just, and so what you've got is you've got a guy of the clergy who's here, and he ain't doing it. And he's there. And what we're going to read is, remember, they have to call in the ark, which means that the very presence of God could have been there among them, but no, it's tucked away somewhere else. And later on, what we'll do is we'll go and get that if we need it. You ever live that kind of Christian life where it's like, look, I'm just going to kind of live life, and when things get a little bumpy, then I'll go find God. God's like, you know, I didn't die for you to do this. I died for you to be with me. Not for you to worship me, not for you to serve me, but for you to be with me. Worship and service will become part and product of that relationship, but it is not the reason. I didn't re it isn't like, wow, you know, if I could just make more people, we could get so much more work done. Really, if God wanted to do that, do you think he would have made us? With all due respect. 
So Jonathan is there with these guys, and he kind of pulls it, if you will, he pulls his assistant aside, and he goes, you know, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of this stalemate of staring at each other, trying to figure out how we can make sure that we are comfortable among ourselves while the rest of the world lies untouched. So let's go do something about it. Are you in or are you not? And his armor bearer says, what's in your heart? Let's do it. Now look it. A lot of what we do is, is I don't want to call it street witnessing, but it is, it's street evangelizing. But what we try to do, and, and much of what we do, is, is, is built from texts like this, where we introduce ourselves as Christians. And, and traditionally, the way we do it is we take somebody with us, somebody that's kind of new. And this is it's so that everybody gets involved. You take a person, let, let me just ask you a question. How many of you here have ever been with somebody that was out evangelizing? Could you just... Oh, that is so rich. Thank you so much. This, well done, best of mine. Uh, I just want you to know that you are, hands down, of the last handful of churches, and I should be careful who I, how I say this, you, you, are, you are by far a greater show of hands. In England, there would be nothing like this other than our church, by the way. Uh, and, and the idea is, is that, look, at an armor bearer is just a person. You know, this is the guy, what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to be the guy that runs with the shield in front of you. So that when they keep throwing, shooting things at you, they block them. So then the other guy comes back and he starts stabbing and killing everyone. He's just the one to stop everything from hitting you first. In other words, he's the one to try to help stop other people from stopping you. That's the idea. So we use the term, and Ben knows this, and Karen and Daryl know this. It's like the, the, we use this term. It's like, well, we, we could really use an armor bearer. Ben and I have done this on, I don't know how many countries. And, and the idea is sort of like, you know, could you do, would you just pray? Would you just pray? I'm going to share. I'm only asking you to do is to pray. But what you have is you have a person who is a spectator observing what you're doing. And it doesn't take long before they get involved. But if you're to go, hey, let's go out evangelizing, the next thing you know, you instantly get diarrhea. <coughs> Excuse me. And you watch people, they're like, ah, the last thing I want to do is that. And you're like, no, but it's the first thing and the last thing I want to do. But you're like, but I've never seen anyone do it before. Well, then come on and watch somebody do it. Now, my way is not, doesn't have to be everyone's way, but my way is this. I actually go to markets, and I just start to talk to people, and I just say, hey, what's your name? I just want you to know my name is Tony. I'm a Christian. I don't tell them I'm a pastor because I don't want them to think this is my job. And it's like, you know, I'm a, my name is Tony. I'm a Christian, and I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you. If you tell me your name, I'll pray for you by name. If you give me any specifics, I will pray for that specific, and I'm going to come back and check on you. And that's how I started. I'm just showing myself to them for who I am. And I'll come back three days later and go, Hamad, how's your son? Does he still have the flu? Now, in a place that has 14.9 million people coming and going, everyone's like on a conveyor belt. The last thing you expect is to see a guy again. So when you see a guy again and you're like, Hamad, how's your son? The guy starts crying. And you're like, yeah. And he's like, wait a minute. Well, what? And I'm like, no, really? I want to know. And then I'll come back three more days later and hey. And I'd like to take that same person that's been with me back with them because they see what happens and they're like, can we talk about, can I tell you why you're so important to me? Because it is this God that I serve. Well, I've heard about Christianity. Oh, well, of course you've heard about it, but can I talk to you about a biblical Christianity, not just a cultural Christianity? And I'd really love to do that. We have a thing called the Secret Secret Society, which is where we pull Muslims, individuals, one by one and sit and talk to them about Jesus. Because you've got a group of them, they're just going to be ignorant and loud. But like, like any group of guys. But you get one guy at a time, you can actually get to a heart. And it's beautiful because we watch priests' kids give their life to Christ. And we watch all these, we watch, I mean, it's, in one case, we won't say from what country, but we will say that one of the prime, one of the chief administrators 
their son gave their life to Christ just about six months ago. And the cool thing is, is that it came from these conversations. Now, now please hear me in this. That an armor bearer is an important thing because you want to have a guy next to you that's just, or a gal, that's just willing to pray with you. Just like, hey, you know, you, what you're doing is not insignificant. It is important. But it allows them to see something like this exampled. Now, what you'll find is, is that whatever way you see it done is probably the way you're going to do it. Now, in a situation like this, Saul looks at his guy and he goes, I, I, I'm sorry, Jonathan looks at his guy and he goes, are you in? And the guy goes, yeah, I'm in, let's go do it. So then they go and they put themselves in this, in this horrible place in between two rocks. Now, I have a, vi a picture of it I can show you guys later. Uh, but the whole idea of it is quite simple. They're in this valley, and there's a rock on one side, and then there's a rock on another. And, and what you have is, is on, on one side, and take a look at it with me. It's in verse 4. It says that Jonathan sought to go over the Philistine garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side, a sharp rock on the other. So the first rock, its name was Bozes. Say Bozes again. And the second one was Sineh. Say Sineh. Now, notice the first one went, it says the front one faced opposite Michmash, and this, the other one was opposite Gebeah. Now, the front one, that's our Bozes. Notice that. As Bozes faces Michmash. Which one of you is Michmash? Okay, now, who's in Michmash? The Philistines are. Who's in Gebeah? Saul is. Now, Jonathan is here in this valley. And as he's here in this valley, he's got these two rocks. The rock, and by the way, who names rocks, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about pet rocks. I mean, imagine you walk through Israel, everything's a rock. So they kind of walk, oh, we're going to call this one Bozes, we're going to call this one Sinna. You know? And then why is that so important? Why does God even tell us these names? Because what they mean is so important. Now, where I live, most of the things that are titled are actually in English. Here, everything's kind of Spanish. Have you noticed that? You know, it's like, hey, where do you live? I live in Santa Maria. You know, like, oh, okay, cool, right? That sounded so, I get hungry when I hear those things, you know. But, you know, there are places like in, where I live, there's a place called Mud Shoot. There's another place called Spittlefields, which tells you that people that live there wanted to be alone, is what I kind of get out of that. <laughs> but it isn't like you don't know what it means. And the reason I say that is these are Hebrew names for a Hebrew place. You knew what it meant. So why is that important? Because what you have is you have two, you have two rocks. There's a rock on this side that I have to get over if I'm going to get at you. There's a rock I have to get over if I have to get at you. What do the names mean? Well, the rock on your side, I remind you, I'm facing here and I'm facing the battle. Is a ba the, the word actually means surpassingly white and glorious. So on this side, I have this rock, and the rock is a rock of glory, and that rock of glory, but I know there's a battle to be fought over here, but that's okay. But the rock over here means thorny and cursed. And this is, and I look back, and what's back here? Well, I remind you, Jonathan Saul's son, this is his past. This is where he came from. And this is, and some of you are familiar with the story when Saul, the Saul of the New Testament, who would get the name changed to Paul, goes through Cyprus from east to west because they left from Israel. And when they went th through Cyprus, they had Barnabas's cousin with them named John Mark. His mom, what we only knew about at that point was that mom had a house in Jerusalem. But when they get to the end of Cyprus, they head up and they head into Turkey. Well, two of the three of them do. What's clear is two ships left that port and one of them went forward. And the other one went back. And John Mark, unfortunately, took the one back to mom's house. 
Here's the sad part. John Mark did not get the experience to know what it was like to watch God raise the dead in front of him like that. To watch an entire group of people actually call Paul and Barnabas gods and then have them have Paul and Barnabas go, no, 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 that's not it. He never got to watch how God built churches in Turkey because he took the easy route home and he went backwards. Here's the problem. Some of you know this, that the life of ministry is a series of one-way tickets. There are no returns on this. And what Jonathan sees is he sees stillness, and he sees apathy, and he sees indifference, and he looks and he says, it's time for us to do something, and he puts him in a place where he's going to go, look it, you got to go one way or the other, and I want to warn you, you're going to walk out that door tonight, believe it or not, I will be done sometime, and when you, when you walk out that door, you're going to have to take one of those two routes. You're going to either have to go, and look at you, well, I'm, going to, I'm not telling you don't go home. But what I'm saying is, go home with a new attitude. A home to say, God, make me like this Jonathan. And what he does, he says, look at, on one side of it, I could go back to the world that I was, and it was still, and it was indifferent, and things aren't happening. And I could go back to that world, but it's thorny and cursed. Or I could take that step into glory, but to take that step into glory, I know there are battles to be fought. But he doesn't say that it's his job to save. What he says is God's not limited to save by many or by few. The question is, do you have that kind of faith? Let me ask you this. Did you have that kind of faith? Because I know people that at one point in their life, they believed God could do anything and they lived like it. Now they tell people God could do anything. And that's it. Now this is what he says. He says... Let's just show them who we are. Now, I remind you, they're at the bottom. That means you can roll boulders, you can throw oil, you can shoot arrows. You are at the greatest disadvantage to be in the valley. You can't turn and run. And he looks and he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to just show ourselves to them, and they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to come at us, or they're going to invite us in. Can I say, that's the way I would like to challenge you about ministry. That's the way evangelism, and we don't call it friendship ministry because friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's what James taught me. But we call it relational evangelism. I'm not there to make friends. I'm there to make converts, and I let them know that. But because I'm there to make converts, I'm there to be their friend because I can't call myself a friend and be indifferent about them going to hell. So I look at them, and I'm like, look it. I'm going to present myself, and you're going to do one of two things. You're going to either come at me or you're going to go and say, well, come on and let's, let's talk about this thing. And this is what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. He says, look it, if they come at us, we'll hold our ground. We're not going to give it up. So if they shoot at us, I'm not bending. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bend on it. So really, do you really believe? Yes, I do believe that. Do you really believe God created everything in seven days? No, I believe God created everything in six. You should read your Bibles, you know. Do you really believe that God flooded the entire earth, you know, and, and you know, put a guy on a boat? I'm like, well, wait a minute. Do you believe in an ice age? Sure. Do you believe the whole world was covered in ice? Sure. What's ice made out of? So which one of us believes the entire world was covered in water? We both do. Yeah, but we have experts that are dead now. Mine's not. You realize people are just looking for someone that really believes what they say. The biggest motion right now is actually towards non-religion. And I'm here to warn you. My prediction, and I'm no prophet, so you can put down the stone, <laughs> is that we at California are the most advanced of most of the, of the states we have in our country. 
And we are the closest to London. I predict a massive, massive falling away in the next 10 years. But it won't be a falling away of people who are full on for Jesus. It'll be people falling away because they thought that life was going to be comfortable following Jesus. Or actually, that they didn't really have to follow him. They just had to just basically accept Jesus and then just wait and live life like they did before. Jesus was an addition to the world instead of becoming the world. And what you'll find is when things get difficult, they're going to go. Jesus warned me of that back in Matthew 13. But what we'll do is it'll show those that will be able to say, and not just sing it at a moment when the music's good. Even if he slay me, I'm still going to praise him. You're not changing my mind. The buses in London fog up quite quickly when it gets cold and rainy, which is, as you're probably aware of, 11 of the 12 months. And so that's a billboard as far as I'm concerned. So I'm there up on the top level and I just write, Jesus died for you and wants you to live for him. Accept his gift. And a person looks at me as they're getting down the stairs and he goes, oh, how retarded. That's the best you've got? And I just, you know, I kind of just looked at him and was like, you know someday you're going to stand before God with that comment? You might want to consider that. But where are the Jonathans? So what happens? You show yourself and say, I'm a Christian. And if they come at you, you hold your ground. And if they invite you in, there's victory to be had. And I'm going to do it. I'm going I'm I'm to tell you about Jesus. And I'm going to love you enough to tell you that there's a choice you are responsible for. And if you don't want to accept that gift of Jesus Christ, you don't have to. But it ain't on my watch. I want you to know this. You, when I leave here, you still have a choice. But you would be wise to choose now. God of the Bible punishes all guilt and still loves every human being. There's no other God you'll find like that. How does he do it? He provided one caveat. And that is if somebody was perfect without guilt they could take your place. God, knowing that the only person for that would be himself, chooses to clothe himself in flesh, if you will. God sends his only begotten son who dies on the cross to pay for it. How do I know it's enough? The same way that every high priest on every Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, knew that the sacrifice was accepted, he came out alive again. Let's put it this way. If we were all in debt, I couldn't pay your debt if I'm in debt myself. The only person that could pay your debt or pay all of our debts would have to be somebody who not only isn't in debt, but has enough to be able to pay for all of our debt. And the only person qualified to do that is God himself. And when he rose again, he didn't ask you to receive a dead savior. He asked you to receive a risen Lord. And that's the choice you'll have to make tonight. So what is the result that takes place as a result of this one guy stepping up and saying, you know what, I'll take that risk. I'll just say, you know, look at, I remind you, all this was as a coming out. Can I be honest with you, right? Let's be honest here. 
He actually just said, I'm going to reveal myself to people and say I am who I am. That's it. And if they come at me, I'm going to hold my ground. And if they invite me in, I'm going for it. What if that's how you started it? How many people don't know that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What if you just said, this Christmas, this is the Christmas where I let them know. But what if they freak out? Better for them to freak out now than later. What if they don't like me? Well, if it's who you are and they don't know, then they don't like you anyways because they don't know who you are. Every study we have other than Sundays is in a, like, we have, we have burger places that give us their entire top floor so we could have Bible studies. And we make noise. I'm telling you, we go for it. We have, we go music that just gets crazy loud. And then we just go for it. And we invite anybody who wants to come and join us. We, I mean, we used to have them in pub places where they'd have pub function rooms, but then people would get beers and join us. And there was something a little weird for the guys who had actually had problems with alcohol. So we had to move them to other places. But I'll tell you what. We watch so many people give their life to Christ, but part of it is they just are like, you really believe this stuff? I'm like, try me on this. Follow me around for a day and figure it out for yourself. And I'm looking, I'm not asking you to do something that's beyond you. I'm asking you for to do something that is so simple that if you claim to love Jesus and you claim to, I'm just asking you to do this, just let people know. I just want you to know, he actually accepted Jesus. And people are like, what does that mean? You're going to be, are you afraid that you'll be like, I don't really know. But I know this much, that I was going to hell because I was guilty and Jesus paid for it and he rose again and I asked if, if I could let him pay my bill and he paid my bill and I said yes. Chances are the way you say it's going to make a whole lot of sense to the people you're speaking to. What if this Christmas be the Christmas where you do that? Because you're in a rock and a hard place right now. Because you're accountable to this. So are the results. So what happens, it tells us, by the way, that it seems like Jonathan didn't actually have any time to actually wait for his armor bearer to run in front of him. Did you notice it said his armor bearer followed behind? So he's just like, ah! And his armor bearer's like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. He's like, no, never mind. Look at what it says. Let's bring this to close. First of all, what we find is that a great victory happens right at the very beginning. But verse 15, what we find is that the enemy trembles. The enemy that had so dominated, that had so browbeat, that had so shut up his people, God's people, now is starting to freak out. The word, by the way, for tremble in verse 15 is the word charada. Charada, by the way, means to be extremely filled with anxiety. In other words, to have a panic attack. That's what the word means. Of course, what we find happens next is that the complacents start to jump in. Notice that Saul hears the tumult, starts to see the people freak out, and he's like, wait a minute, what's going on? Wait a minute, where is, wait, who's missing? Who started this fight? And then he looks around and he finds out it's his own son. As the noise continues to increase, he tries to get the priest involved, tries to get the ark there. What he finds out is, is that things are just getting crazy. He's like, come on, boys, we need to get back into this battle. Maybe some of you, you've been battle sore. Maybe you've got scars to talk about great victories that God's done in the past. But man, is it really just to mask the silence recently? Because, man, I'm telling you, if you're still breathing, God's got better stories to give you. But you're going to have to walk them to get them. And I'm telling you, I can tell you amazing stories. Ben and I can tell you amazing stories from 10, 15, 20 years ago. But, man, I tell you what, I'm, I'm excited about the next set. And with that, 
But we find the next thing that happens is that verse 21, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines, remember those people who actually jumped ship and actually joined the enemy? It tells us that they went, in, went into hot pursuit. Verse 22 tells us that the people who were hiding in caves and in holes, they jumped into this thing. So what you have is you had the complacent that threw themselves back into the fray. You have the people who had actually betrayed and ran back into the world, now leaving the world again. And you have those that had been so freaked out that are finally getting boldness. And this is what I want. I want this for you, because I would love to see Bakersfield transformed. I can tell you this. When we first showed up in London eight years ago, there were four places we were told never to go to. So within six months, we had Bible studies in all four of those places. And it wasn't like, well, I should say this, within a year. Uh, it wasn't like it was, you know, we just went out and handed out pamphlets. Hey, everybody come to a Bible study, Magic Dove, you should show up. There was nothing of that sort. It was people that were like, what's this religious thing? Where's your collar and are you celibate? Well, those are good questions to ask, I suppose, because that was their frame of reference. And I said, why don't you just come and find out for yourself? Some of those people had been very disenchanted by what they had seen. Some of those people had never heard of Jesus, to be honest. Other than, I mean, you tell them about John, and they're like, John, who's John? I'm like, we've got a couple to choose from. John the Baptist, who is? He's like, oh, he's a Baptist? And I'm like, no. Well, yes, but yeah, well. Yeah. They genuinely don't know. And these are people raised in religious schools. I mind you that. In every school that we've gone to, that's a Church of England school, the head of their religious education department is a Muslim. Every one of them that we've been to. Now, people used to go to Camden, like I was saying, we were, I was telling Mike at dinner, like you would go to a haunted house just to get the creeps. And the people that were super high profile all go to our church now. The area that was kind of known for black-on-black -black violence. Well, let me say this. As the Lord leads us and we default from away from the comfort and the stillness and the stagnancy of great old stories and cool things to talk about, the Lord has led us to plan a whole new work now. When we return on the 6th of January, I will hand my church over to three young men men that were lost, confused, timid, fearful, that are chomping at the bit to get Jesus to people. And if you met them, they would catch you on fire, I warn you. If there's kindling in your heart, it would catch. So that we can go do this somewhere else and let them do what they're doing. We have watched almost entire casts from West End performances give their life to Christ. Start their own Bible studies. Then go on tour. There was this whole, like, they called it the Lion King cult because there was a whole group of people that went on tour and they had their, they just, they were all part of the Bible study and they're like, well, why don't you guys do it now? And so they went, for a whole year and a half, they went and did that. And look at, the cool thing is not me, and you know that. The cool thing is the Jesus that we serve that loves people so much that they'd use any bozo like myself and you 
But maybe you're one of these people. Maybe you're one of those people that you've been jumping into the world so deeply that it's kind of like you feel guilty for showing up at church. I'm here to let you know God's calling you out of that to join in the real fight because only one of them is going to matter at the end. Maybe you're one of those people that's been hiding in a hole. You've been tucking into whatever your cave is, and you're kind of letting people know. You're just trying to let them know you're cool, but you're not really letting them know about the person who saves them. Tonight, that should change. So this is what I want to do as we end this. You're in this rock and a hard place right now because you're going to have to make a decision. In one way or another, you're going to head back to your house a different person. Even the Pharisees who actually challenged Jesus when they encountered him, they were actually, they left a different person. They left more hardened, more convinced that they should fight this Jesus. So what you want to do tonight? And by the way, the odds are likely that there's a person or two in here like that, struggling right now and kind of going, you know, if this is really what it's about, but let's be honest. If this is really about mamby-pamby, mediocre, lukewarm living, which one of you would respect that anyways? Is that really what you want to join? The mediocre club? The monotony club? Man, the Bible is still amazing. And people getting saved still amazes me. And the way that he transforms people and pulls them out of addiction still radically amazes me. And I love to watch these things. And I'm just here to let you know that God wants to move you forward. Whatever that forward looks like, he's moving us to the Santa Monica area. Never thought in a million years that's where we'd wind up. But what happened is God had just shown us that if we're going to go and start raising up people to, to go into antagonist countries, we have to be in an antagonistic country ourselves. And by the way, California is doing a really good job at that. What the first thing we were told a year ago is that there's a mass exodus of Christians leaving this, this, um, this state. And I remember people asking, when are you coming back? And going, right, like that's going to happen, you know. And I'm so thankful for men who are willing to stand and say, look, we're going to stand on the word of God and we're going to, we're going to example this. We're going to live this. For there are too few and far between. But there was a time when England was that country and we sent people here. And we were very thankful for that. I think it's about time we started returning the favor. Will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, I want to thank you so much, first of all, for wanting people that shouldn't be wanted in our own merit. But you don't love us because we're lovable. You love us because you are love. You want us not because we're intrinsically valuable in regards to our talents or gifts, because all of that stuff is what you gave us anyways. We're valuable because you created us to be with you. We're valuable because you in your heart of hearts desire fellowship with us. And I pray, God, for your sleeping army. Those that at one point had that fight in them, had that vigor, had that drive, but have used things in life. And life gets busy and somehow the sun stops being the center of our universe and now we're just trying to figure out how to keep it all together. But I pray, Lord, for the Caleb's that you would raise up that would still want the land 40 years later. 
for the Moseses that would still want to lead people out and still have their vigor on their dying day. People who could look back and say, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Who see the battlefield you lead us on, the real battlefield, the one of human souls, is the greatest place and adventure we could be in. And even if that is that your ministry calls us to other believers to ignite them into action or to the lost out there as you send us there to show ourselves to them and pray for their invitation. Show us how to get the gospel to human beings because we pray for a fresh ignition of desire to see Bakersfield saved, transformed in your name, Jesus. And we pray, as Jesus, you told the disciples that the fields were white for harvest, but the laborers are few, that they should pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters to the field, and then you sent them out. So there they were praying, God, send people, and they didn't know they were praying for themselves. Well, in the same here, God, as we pray for the salvation of this, this city, God, we pray that you would use us that as you seek to find one person who would stand in the gap for your people, use us. That when they're hurting and the lost are desperate and advertising their need, use us. And make us bold for you. Put that fight back in our hearts, God, I pray. The one that's right, that Paul would say on his dying days, I fought the good fight, I've won the race, I've kept the faith. There is laid up for me now a crown of righteousness, which you, Jesus, have reserved for him, and not only for him, but for all who have loved your appearing. And I pray tonight that you would set us alight to truly proclaim your truth. And this Christmas, this Christmas, may we come out with it. And if there be anyone in here tonight as the gospel is the power of salvation for anyone who would believe the truth has gone out. The question is, will you mix it with faith? That's just trust. Are you willing to accept that gift that Jesus has paid for you at the cross and declare him as your Lord? Because if you're willing to do that tonight, God is willing to save you, rescue you, pull you out of the toilet of your life and hose you off and make you perfect and pure in his sight and to ignite you into a whole new life now to make you a new creation. And it's a simple thing. He's asking for you to admit who you are, to accept his gift, and declare him as Lord. And if that's you, I just want to lead you in a prayer right now. Would you pray this prayer with me right now? And look at it. If you're not sure you've ever prayed to receive Jesus, you could be sure. Pray with me now. If you're sure you haven't, now's the time to change your mind and receive this gift. Pray with me, would you? God in heaven, I'm guilty before you. I've thought wrong, felt wrong, done wrong. But you've punished all my guilt on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins so that I could be punished. Just like scripture promised. And he was buried, 
And he rose again on the third day, just like scripture promised. And you give me the choice to accept that gift. And I say yes. Please wash me clean. Please make me new. Jesus, I declare you my ransom, my savior, and my Lord. I hand my life over to you now. Here I am. I'm yours. Jesus, in your name I pray. And if you agree with that prayer tonight, would you give me a good, strong amen.